Hello and welcome. You're listening to episode one of Auto Catch Up, recorded on the 21st of March 2020. All right, well, thank you for, for joining us this week and um, for our first episode. Joining me um, to discuss everything that's been happening in the world of cars, um, I've got Joel Strickland, um, photographer, content creator, one of the busiest photographers and best ones in Australia when you're talking about cars. You can find him on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, Joel Strick Photo, um, as well as I have Mick McWilliams um, from Low Flight, one of the busiest car bloggers out there at the moment thanks for joining me guys thanks for having us all right so what's what's been happening joel joel what have you been driving what have you been doing uh lately well up until the uh the virus hit us that uh, had been things have been fairly busy with bits and pieces but uh what i had been up to was i had spent a little bit of time doing some work with mg driving their new mg hs and photographing that for the launch which was done for journos uh recently uh, back in feb and that was a bit of fun it's a great uh great car big change with uh, upgrade from the previous model and uh, a fun little package you know for what it is uh for in the market, it's a it's a rip, well well spec ripper model, and uh, I think it'll do well for them in Australia. Mm, cool, and uh, it's it's look it, it's taking a while for people to get used to I guess the new MG. I think a few people, um, particularly uh, older car people, tend to really think of MG in a different way. Um, but I'm seeing tons of them on the road. Um, it's it's quite surprising at how how popular they've gotten in such a short amount of time. Yeah, the dealer network's really grown for them as well. Like here in Victoria, the the network has has really. Um, it was originally there was only some up on the border in New South Wales, but they put some in in Melbourne region. They put them out in the west and um, in some of the northern suburbs, and and it's really starting to to grow. And it's funny when we were driving the uh, the car around to do the, the the photography for it, the number of previous models so like the previous gen zs and, and things like that there were more and more of them on the on the road we, we spent time out in the era valley and there's a dealership not far from there and there were quite a few that we saw uh, on the way and um yeah it's it's really growing i think it's uh it's quite it's quite interesting to see that market you know they've got the mg3 as well for their their compact vehicle mm-hmm. model as well and there's a few of those on the road getting around so i think that's they're one to watch and i think they've got some cool stuff coming as well there's an electric uh, version coming and and they've got some other models that they that they've been talking about so I'm really interested to see what uh, what happens over the next 12 18 months yeah, yeah totally. I think they're doing a uh, they're doing quite a good job I think of understanding what their market is uh, even though I mean it's obviously a a more affordable brand but it doesn't look like it you get a lot of design for the money um, quite a quite a really good looking car very attractive they, and they certainly stand out yeah, and and they're spec'd well too. That's the thing. And like this, these ones we're driving had CarPlay and um, lots of safety tech. Um, and yeah, they've just they are just they. And like you said, they are such a good looking car. Like the the development of the model design, the ZS was one of the first to really move to that um, more aggressive and, and nicer looking front, similar to what's on the on the MG3. But um, the new HS is uh, is a really good looking car. And it's funny you, you mentioned small features and oh, it's well packed into a small package, and um, I think that's a that's probably the thing that could be winning buyers over are the things that being included like uh, like CarPlay and and Android Auto 
you know, into cars into those price brackets because some other car makers out there aren't listening to their customers and, and listening to those requests still. Um, and so if you're packing it into a pretty affordable package and you're giving people those small features that they're wanting, um, it makes the buying decision really, really easy because at the end of the day, most people just want something to get from home to work or to the bus station or to school. And um, if they can if they can have things like CarPlay that make their overall enjoyment of that car, you know, just a little bit better, um, it's going to be pretty easy to, to sway them over. Yeah, I think it's a uh, it's a universally attractive product as well. It's it's like iPhones because everybody knows there's Apple CarPlay and there's Android Auto and they're the same product across a whole bunch of different brands. So they're kind of feeding their own awareness. Every time one brand talks about it, it's feeding into the awareness of the Google Android product and the Apple product. And everybody's starting to see those now as a, mm. you know, an essential criteria. You you should have it. And if you don't, why don't you? Particularly if people have multiple cars in their family, uh, it's the one consistent experience they have between those vehicles. And it's personalized to you um, because you can customize those home screens as well. Um, but with MG, do you, think, um, do you think we'll see any sports cars or small affordable sports cars from them? Are they brave enough to, to, to tackle and touch that part of the brand's heritage? It's a strong history that they have with the model and there's still a lot of passionate owners that own the classic vehicles. But uh, look, I think they're the way that they're thinking. They've been, there was a design render a while back that showed that they were thinking about doing some form of sports car. But I think for them, look, I'd love to see it. Like, don't get me wrong. I'd love to see them create something. The MG6, they actually had one that raced in the production car championship for a while. And, and unfortunately that model is no longer being sold. Um, you know, around the around the well in Australia, there is a an updated version, I believe, overseas, uh, which wasn't really a sports car; it was more a sedan. Um, but look, I think they'd be great to see. But I think for their market, I think they're really concentrating on that uh, on that SUV market. But I think with some of their electronic, well, electric technology that they're working on, I think it'd be interesting to see. Uh, uh, see them come out with some kind of sports car along those lines. So, look, I wouldn't say, you know, don't say never, but who knows what the, the future may hold. Good point. And, Mick, so what have you been driving lately? You've been very busy, I, I see. Uh, yes, yeah, so I had the uh, Kia Seltos uh, Sport Plus uh, two weeks ago, and I followed that up with the Nissan Qashqai Ti uh, directly after, and I've stepped into possibly the... Uh, Qashqai N Sport, that might have been the one that you had. Mm -hmm. uh, so I've been in that sort of compact uh, SUV segment for a couple of weeks there. Um, I'm, I'm pretty impressed actually with the Qashqai, the, you know, I guess the um, traditional automotive side of me says CVT is bad. Um, mm. But I'm, I'm actually quite impressed with how the CVTs are uh, performing in the in the Qashqais particularly and the Seltos as well. I mean, I drove the Seltos... Uh, the GT line a few weeks ago, which is the um, the dual clutch transmission, which can be a little bit, you know, they're a little bit hesitant when you're going in really slow traffic, like school traffic and all that sort of thing. And mm -hmm. as soon as I went to the Seltos Sport Plus, which is the CVT two liter combo, uh, that was a lot smoother for doing things like the school run where you're sitting in, you know, very slow moving um, traffic all the time. Um, it, it seemed to have no problems with that whatsoever. Um, 
but then I did find too the with the Seltos Sport Plus because it's not all drive, they've got a beam rear axle, so they're actually a little bit. Um, I guess their ride quality is a little bit more compromised than I was expecting. Seltos being a very new product, um, the whole the basics of it are, are very good. They're um, a nice rigid car to drive, like they feel very solid and firm and 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 well tuned. Just a little bit upset by that beam rear axle, and you mm-hmm. you know you lose that compromise with the sport with the GT line, where you get the um, all wheel drive, so you have four wheel independent rear uh, independent rear suspension. Um, you know, I, I think they're asking quite a bit of money for the for the Sport Plus. It's very similar to the to the cash kite for the um, TI. So you're looking sort of that mid 30s. Mm-hmm. I'd sort of expect that same sort of um, uh, competence in the in the suspension tuning. When you when you know, a beam rear axle seems to be um, a bit of a missing um, feature. They should have sort of uh, kept for that mid spec. Aside from that, very nice product, the Seltos, the cash kite mm-hmm. itself. Again, obviously, it's a it's older than the Seltos, and you can you can feel that in the finish of the cabin. It just looks yeah. a little bit dated, but it's not bad either. I mean, it's still a very comfortable ride, gets along fairly well. And I don't know if you what did you think of the with the M Sport Ash with the Michelin Pilot Sport tires? I thought that were pretty good. Yeah, I I, I actually um I, I drove an ST Qashqai a little bit ago. And um, I didn't really enjoy it. It was a little bit ugly. It was just um, just a little bit <laughs> yeah. too bare bones um, yeah. for for what they want for it. Um, however, I was actually um, I, I'd, I'd always try my best before getting into these cars. I try to avoid as much um, you know going as, as fresh on mind as I possibly yeah. can. <laughs> With media the way it is, it's, it's really hard. Um, but just to, just to go when I hop in the car, go okay, all right. Um, what are they trying to tell me from from the car? What 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 value proposition are they trying to offer um, to a potential car buyer? And I was really impressed um, with the N Sport. I think, unfortunately, the name makes it sound a little bit more sportier in terms of that they've done a little bit more under the hood. Um, it is purely just a cosmetic affair. However, um, I think the styling is really yep. good. The it, styling's it just, great on it. Like yeah, the, the wheels and wheel is fantastic. Um, there's there's so yeah, many. Yeah, I was surprised. The N Sport looks right. better than the. Yeah, this, I think the N Sport looks better than the Ti, and there's there's about four grand difference I think between the price of the two of them. There's a few more things besides that, but yeah. I definitely think the N Sport is a is a better looking vehicle considering the the age of the base of the base vehicle itself. Yeah. And look, yeah. I think that's Nissan at the moment. They're just most of their product lineup is feeling a little bit older. Um, so I've yeah. so this week I've been driving the um, the Pathfinder um, Entrek. So that's CST. Oh, the new one. Yeah, and oh. um, like it, it looks really good. It 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 feels it kind of for me. I've been watching a lot of American TV lately, and um, they know how to really make their car ads look great. And um, the Pathfinder in those ads looks amazing. And um, to finally see one here on Aussie shores that look as good as the ads, you know, for the cars over in America is actually really refreshing. The wheels look great. It's just a little bit more, um, it, it doesn't feel like you've, you've you know, succumbed to, this, to the requirement of needing seven seats. Um, so you had to go a little bit boring. There are a few things missing from it. Um, there is no CarPlay. There is no Android Auto. Um, so you have to rely on the old 
older style of iPod communication and they haven't updated the uh, system in that yet. That's no, right. so, yeah, so it's that's a really big missed opportunity given that the system underneath appears to be anyway fairly similar to the Kashkai. Um, so I think a little bit more time and effort would have been um, uh, really worthwhile in just refining those little things. Um, and also, it's it's the, the the problem we have as um, doing the jobs that we do. We're constantly moving in between different cars, and so um, by the time you get used to a feature set of one vehicle, and then you hop into another. And then you realize that one thing out of that whole set is missing. You kind of feel a bit more dirty about it. And I, and that's how I kind of feel between at the moment with the Pathfinder and the Kashkai. They kind of get a little, they get close to having all the features that you want. So the Pathfinder has um, the, uh, the adaptive cruise control, but it doesn't have any sort of, um, and it has blind spot monitoring, but it doesn't have lane keep or um, lane departure alert where the Kashkai yeah. didn't have, um, the Interport didn't have, the adaptive cruise control, but it had the lane departure and the blind spot monitoring. Um, so, and when you're moving in between different vehicles and you feel like one is at a higher grade than the other and that sort of thing, regardless of whether those vehicles are older or not in their product cycle, sometimes you just feel like, well, you assume that that should be part of that product set. Um, you know, part of the features that, you know, a buyer should walk in and kind of expect um, yeah. for that car. I think wouldn't, you know, they've got the promotion on every vehicle they have is all focusing on the on those features. Like it's it's yeah. the primary front of mind message they're trying to get for all the advertising. So really, they should be to be meeting that expectation. They should have all of those features there because I think customers are going to see those ads, go to a dealer and expect those things to be there. They're not going to be, you know, I'd I'd be disappointed to. Um, get in there and, and they go, I oh, know this one doesn't do lane keeping assist or this one does it or this one does it. You know, you've got to pick and choose between them. Yeah. If they're going to be trying to sell a, um, you know, a safety features image for the brand, they need mm -hmm. to be able to satisfy those expectations. Yeah. That's the whole idea of, of, of advertising things. You know, you don't want people to come in and be disappointed by the message. Yeah. And and look, comparing look the the Pathfinder drives really well. It's really nice. the The engine in there is really smooth. Um, you do when um, when moving from uh, the smaller four cylinder and, and turbocharged engines going to a um, to non charge model, you do have to drive a little bit more differently. Um, so you have to adapt your driving <laughs> style to Faster. really get the revs out of it. Um, however, look, it drives yeah. really nicely. It just um, and it's a really great looking package. It just falls short on those couple little areas, which for me in my mind, um, unfortunately, the the now um, defunct Holden Arcadia really ticked all of those boxes. Um, you know, they, they really yeah. went all out. And I think, yeah, a lot of manufacturers can probably breathe a sigh of relief because of that, um, even though they weren't, the Arcadia wasn't really selling in the numbers, which I think, you know, General Motors and Holden had really hoped. But it really kind of, in my mind anyway, set the benchmark for what other large SUVs really should be offering, um, yeah. you know, as, as, a, as a feature pretty set. Amazing, got some pretty amazing economy out of the, the Acadia. I mean, I drive between Brisbane and the Sunshine Coast quite often, and it was like, yeah. you know, in the sixes, low sixes sort of thing. That was yeah. pretty impressive, really, for such a, for such a large vehicle. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, they've done really well. 
Yeah. And um, yeah, confusing too that the I tried the what was it Calais Tura, which is the same. You know, it's the same V6 all-wheel drive nine-speed mm-hmm. auto, but I couldn't mm-hmm. get the same economy out of that that I got out of the Acadia for some reason. I, yeah. I'm not sure whether they had cylinder deactivation on the Calais. I don't think they did. No, I don't think they do on Acadia. So, yeah. Yeah. Look, it's 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 a really confusing time, and I know that the emphasis at the moment I'm I'm seeing, you know, and we're seeing in marketing for these vehicles isn't as much on fuel economy anymore. The the real focus on that has kind of shifted a little bit um, compared to, I guess, a few years ago where it was all about fuel economy. Um, and prior to that, it was all about the safety rating. So we've kind of moved on and we're focusing on these smaller tech-oriented features. But I'm still mm. blown away that, um, you know, I'm just about to publish the next edition of the Velocita magazine. And um, most cars out, outside the electric ones, of course, in terms of economy, they're all getting about the same. They're all getting anywhere between the 8 and 10 litres per 100. It doesn't matter what size the car yeah. is. Um the engine, the weight, whatever it is, they all just seem to be hitting that magic eight to ten liter mark um, for you know for your combined cycle, and that's really surprising for me. There's a lot of smaller cars that I would have expected, you know, in general, just to to get a lot better economy, um, simply because they're a much smaller, a lot more compact, and a lighter vehicle for the engine which they had. Mm, I, th- I think there's a, uh, a, I mean, there's a distinct shift as well at the moment, and. Um, Blame Volkswagen, blame whoever you like. <laughs> yeah. Dieselgate. Um, you know, everybody is, seems to be turning their back on diesels. So they, um, and they that's their primary um, saving grace for diesels was their fuel economy. And it doesn't mm-hmm. seem to be yeah. at people's forefront of mind anymore, no. whether or not it's because they don't trust the figures you get out of diesels, which is, you know, I guess we we probably need to, to touch on that point about um, fuel economy um and the way the engineers work, they, they're given a task to make a certain amount of performance happen in a particular environment. Mm-hmm. So if you yeah. tell them that they're supposed to be in a lab doing this speed on a, um, you know, parked or running up a hill or whatever, mm-hmm. whatever that particular specification is, the engineers will do whatever it takes to get the best result for that environment and that's yeah. exactly what volkswagen mm-hmm. engineers did mm-hmm. um whether or not it was ethical or not is you know probably not at the forefront of their mind they would have been given a specification by their boss and said make this engine use the least amount of fuel here's mm-hmm. your environment you have to perform yeah. in and that's what they did yeah so um but and, and look the it, result, it's a totally yeah. huge different discussion that we could have as well as even going looking at our own shores and and, and going um you know I think there's something to be to be unpacked where I don't think we do enough to test the claims of the manufacturers either. Um, I think yeah. we take a little bit more of um, from a from a regulation point of view and from a government perspective. I think a lot of them just believe the figures that the car makers are, are providing them and and don't go well even just like ANCAP where they go well here's here's our set of criteria. Um, if you yeah. if you want you ha- if you want to advertise a certain safety rating. Well, it has to meet this criteria. Um, and we don't do the same with fuel economy, even though we do have the fuel economy stickers on every single new car. Um, that's usually, as far as I'm aware, and I haven't seen any information to, to contradict that, where it goes, well, that's just supplied by the manufacturer. And the the only um, 
potential is really if you know our regulators want to do a spot check of of that but it's not actually we don't actually i don't i don't believe at the moment we properly go through and test each of those claims for fuel economy no, even though no most one, people no buy a car it. no and even though most people going buying a car that i speak to go oh yeah that's what they say but i usually add a bit onto that and i don't think i, don't, I personally <laughs> i don't think that's good enough i don't i, I think no. what's the point of having an official figure if it can't be backed up um, and that's why, like, whenever I do a review of a car, I always say, well, here's what they claim, and this is what I got based on my driving, um, because I don't yeah. think it's always... There are some manufacturers that do a really good job. Suzuki, one of them, um, most of the time, their fuel, their claimed fuel efficiency figure, I can either match that or do better, and I think that's... I think they tend to be quite sensible, um, yeah. but most other manufacturers, I, I can't even get close to the figure which they're doing and i try really hard to do an honest mix of highway and city driving um yeah. and thankfully that's partially because of where i live and how you know the places where i typically go to um that's the type of mix of driving that i get but we just don't do enough to sort of call manufacturers out on it and and go hey don't just take the global figure because also our fuel quality is different we have different levels of fuel quality and different different standards for that as well. But we also um, have different climates as well. You got to exactly. look at what what you guys are getting up there. I mean, with it being hotter for more for for more of a year, you're running aircon a fair bit. Where down here in Victoria, we you'll get hot months, but then we'll have that cold snap over winter, and you're not necessarily going to run aircon. So as soon as you turn aircon on, that just totally changes the the way that the car is going to run with the fuel economy and everything else. So. Uh, you know, all of a sudden what might have been, you know, getting close to manufacture might just go through the roof because you're running aircon flight out because you're trying to bring the temp down. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, and, and look, it's not easy. It's, there are a ton of different variables. Like you said, you've got temperature, fuel quality, road quality, um, uh, driver quality. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, your altitude as well, that can affect it. Um, there's so many different variables. But I think um, we could really go a lot further and 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 make things better for buyers um, just by having a, a clearly set out standard for what fuel economy means in Australia and having those cars designed to meet that and you know accurately communicate what that is. Yeah, I think there's a um, the amount of data that you can gather these days from vehicles. There's an opportunity in there somewhere for manufacturers or a manufacturing body fca or whoever um mm -hmm. to come up with some sort of more reliable demonstration of fuel economy like yep. even if there's a um a fixed um route that's that you drive and just has pure engine data coming back out of the vehicle that's available for data nerds to analyze but for sensible people just to come up with a summary to say hey this is this is the test loop that everyone does and this is how much this car got and this is how much this car got and this is how long the time took because you know i'm also a habitual analyst so whenever i try and compare apples to apples or mm -hmm. or whichever i always try and troubleshoot where the um the differences could occur between the two sets of data so um, obviously somebody can drive the same route from Brisbane to the Sunshine Coast at a different time of day and the time of day obviously affects whether or not you're in peak hour or what sort of traffic flow you get. 
so that the actual transit time isn't the greatest indicator either. But because no. you can get such granularity in data these days from, from vehicle systems, there's no reason why um, <clears throat> they couldn't come up with a more appropriate model to say to people, this is what we got, this is the time that it took for us to drive it. And then you can be able to, you can compare it to other data sets there and get a little bit more confidence in whatever figure they're actually offering. Mm. And look, uh, yeah, I, th I think yeah, it'd be an interesting space, and I'm, and um, it'd be interesting to see uh, if we get some sort of comment, particularly with um, and and it pro provides a good segue into our next session, which is talking about COVID nineteen, and the impact of um, you know, on the world of automotive, um, because even things like oil and fuel prices. So at the moment, the fuel prices um, as of Friday. Um, you know, the 20th of March, they've hit 2002, 2003 prices. So it's like $20 US per barrel. However, um, here in Brisbane anyway, our fuel prices have been hovering anywhere between 112 and, and 115 for your, your E10 fuel. But over the weekend, we started to see fuel prices skyrocket back up to about 157, um, 160. Yeah. For no reason. Yeah. It makes no sense at all. Um, and, you know, places like ABC are, are reporting on it and, and going, well, this doesn't make any sense because how can one half of the city be at 160 when other parts of the city are at 112? And we have, you know, when fuel prices back in 2002, 2003 were under a dollar. So why aren't we seeing prices that close? Um, it seems a bit, bit ridiculous. We hit a dollar. There were, there were pictures people posting online down here in Victoria that we're under a dollar for for much of last week. It's mm -hmm. bizarre to see it that low again. Yeah, and and look, it's just a shame that nobody's driving anywhere. Like that's part of the thing that's driving the um, the fuel price down. Of course, is is the lack of demand for it across the world, and and also the 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 pricing war between um, the different oil suppliers, but. Um, yeah, it's just, it doesn't really make a lot of sense um, that, you know, is it, uh, is it fuel companies taking advantage of, of people at this time? Um, or what, what do you think, Mick? It's, yeah, it's, it, it's a definitely a very tricky question because, you know, I've told myself in not trying to apply logic to fuel prices before. Um, you know, there's always talk about, well, we should base our prices off the of Singapore uh, gas price, but you know, I, I think they. I, I, did, I went from Brisbane where it was a dollar fourteen. I uh, sorry, it was a dollar twenty when I left Brisbane on Friday. It was a dollar sixty at the um, Twin Shells at um, Horsehead Mountain or Wild Horse Mountain, and then in Bly Bly it's a dollar fourteen again. So it it doesn't appear to follow any sort of logic at all. It's incredibly hard to try and find a trend. Um, and really, I, I really think that fuel stations are doing themselves a disservice these days. A lot of people have motor mouth or fuel yeah. watch or Petrol any spire. of those apps, which they, yeah, with reasonable accuracy, you know, they'll tell you what the what mm -hmm. the pump price is at any location and color code it based on your your location on the map. It's yeah. it's crazy to have those sort of fuel prices. So I mean, maybe they will catch a few people or people that are running. Um, you know, it, the people that are sales reps that don't really care about price because mm -hmm. the company pays for it anyway, yeah. they'll just feel like, but really it doesn't seem a sound strategy to me. Um, the thing I could 
one is that they're potentially seeing a reduction in income. You know, a lot of people are going to be perhaps put into lockdown from COVID-19 state. Mm-hmm. So they're up a little bit of capital before you but um, it's, it's very hard to make sense of. I can't see how they're, well, I can see how they're making money out of it, but you'd think their reduction in sales would, would kind of offset that. Yeah, exactly. Well, look, it's going to be an interesting thing to, to follow on. Like you said, there's plenty of apps out there, um, particularly with more and more states mandating or running trials at providing live or relatively um, frequently updated fuel prices. So um, it mm-hmm. is, it's something that I'm doing anyway, that as well as um, keeping a close eye on, on those apps. And, and look, when I need fuel, I'm going to the places that, you know, are offering a good price because, well, I think they deserve it. I want to save money and, um, and also I want to reward those for offering a good price for the, the circumstances. Um, so yeah, it's it's going to be interesting to to follow and 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 to see. I think with everything that's going on, because the next thing as well is most of the global automotive manufacturing has has come to a grinding halt. You've got everything, you know, almost the entire U.S. and European industries have closed down. Um, last night, um, Bentley joined the list of uh, of manufacturers that are shutting down for a period. Um, so it's it's gonna. It's with the rest of the things that are happening in the economy. Um, what does this mean for the automotive industry having these shutdowns occur? Just gonna delay. You know, those that would probably stop, particularly. You know, most. I don't know in terms of. I know that some of the Japanese brands generally keep their stuff on the lower side in terms of stock. So I think we'll probably yeah. see the wait lists for. You know, most vehicles probably blow quite significantly out in terms of once the the current stock that's here is exhausted. But I mean, most of the European or, um, you know, the brands that are out there have probably been suffering a bit of late due to stink bug as well. So that was already causing delays with, you know, availability of product and things like that over the past few months. So now with them totally stopping production i think the wait list for for aussies to to buy cars is going to blow right out and i mean the government's trying to um which you know people still haven't confirmed that it it will do the ability to you know increase the the asset write-off um in terms of value up for more but no one's been able to prove exactly whether or not it's going to apply to vehicles so even if people Mm -hmm. are buying cars you may not be able to get that asset right off but you know i was talking to a friend the other day that's uh in the middle of looking at possibly buying a new ute and he's you know he's he's hoping to watch the market and see what deals are out there uh, he thinks that he might be able to pick up something at a good price because either you know there'll be stock that's you know we still probably have some 2019 build product still in the country so you know as that gets longer in the tooth we may see some good deals there but 2020 stock or even 2021 stock if this hangs out till sort of no till september mm. um it's going to be interesting to see what kind of in the number of vehicles that are out there <laughs> could be quite good for the second hand market the second hand market might you know might go, through, yeah. go through the roof uh, in terms of what people are buying because if you can't buy new people will buy x demo or or used or whatever um it, it'll be interesting to watch to see what the market does do you think yeah. uh, the the uh, higher end product that typically has a, a wait list already is going to be impacted higher than um, your mainstream? Because uh, I think 
looking driving past dealers at the moment, they seem to be stock doesn't seem to be necessarily a problem. It's always a conscious thing that they're thinking about, having worked in that part um, of the automotive industry. Um, but do you think this is going to be more of a headache if, um, particularly in the short term and maybe, maybe medium term, for brands like Ferrari, Lamborghini, um, Bentley, Rolls Royce, even where you know, typically they already have quite a long wait and a long list of customers waiting to buy product where the other end of the market, particularly if you look at VFAX, um, tends to be it's already at a fairly slow rate um, and stock seems to be piling up um, for a few brands, for dealers. Um, yeah, mm. is that is that going to be heavier hit? Um, and, and then not aided by if we go into a recession or any other type of economic um, downturn. I think with the when you're talking about the higher end brands, so the the Rolls Royces and Ferraris and that sort of thing, there's there's already an expectation due to their exclusivity and the customization of the actual product itself that there's already a, an extended wait time. So the build time for an individual unit um, is already going to be long, which creates a bit of an opportunity for those mm-hmm. manufacturers to to rush things in at the end and make sure they get all the stuff. And it's you know people are. It, you're not expected to walk into a Ferrari dealership and go, I want that one. Um, well, I haven't bought a Ferrari, but that would be my <laughs> expectation that somebody sits down with me and talks about how soft the leather is that I want. Um, mm. But again, when you talk about the other end of the market where the market has already been contracting. So from the Australian perspective, ex- excluding Kia probably is the, is the strongest growth um, mass production type brand at the moment, but most of the other brands have all been experiencing contraction. And every time you buy a car and have it sitting on a lot or sitting in a transfer yard, it's costing you money. So mm. due to low demand, they would have had a, a you know a lower order sheet. They would have been keeping less in their supply yeah. chain. So you know the, it would have been really stretched as far as product goes right back to the factory point where they're ordering stuff. So. I really think where they've stopped those factories, the little, the the lower risk, lower volume numbers that you would have in your supply chain is going to dry up fairly quickly. And they're going to mm-hmm. have to get those factories running very fast as soon as they can to, to fill up that backlog. But I mean, again, that's who's to say how long is it going to be before people can, you know, go out and drive around places and be sociable again. People are still going to yeah. be, I guess, a little bit risk averse at this point. So mm-hmm. it's... It's going to be a long, dry spell, I think. Yeah. Particularly if you're waiting for a uh, Rav Rav Four hybrid, yeah. which is already <laughs> yeah. a uh, quite or a Suzuki late. Jimny. So. Oh yeah, they're the same as well, are they? Yeah, yeah. Mm. I think uh, it's 18 months now or so for a, for a wait if you wanted to order a Jimny. Um, oh. Yeah, I think they've just recently. Well, I don't know if it's gone ahead. I haven't been informed any other way, but they were opening a second factory. Um, for the Indian market, so I think that was going to uh, free up some some production capacity for Australia. But um, yeah, obviously with everything that's going on, it's probably going to push out um, anyway. Even just supply chain wise, um, getting cars from one country to another can can slow down during this period. Um, yeah. But in terms of shutdown, another really big uh, big part that's impacted is motorsport. Motorsport, everything from um, from Formula One, where now the discussion is amongst teams as of 24 hours ago, is that they're going to essentially move into their summer break early um, because obviously at the moment there's no races, um, no physical races anyway. 
um, going ahead. So there's a there's an opportunity to bring that forward and to open up um, some space for um, for some of those postponed races, whether it's Australia, China, um, the Dutch, Spanish. Monaco has been officially cancelled for this year, so it's the first time since 1954. Um, but yeah, those factories are also going to into shut down as well as um, a whole heap of different um, different categories of racing um, and even things like the Formula One regulations being pushed back. Uh, the 2021, the new sweeping regulations um, have now been formally pushed back to 2022. So it's a, a huge um, thing. But Joel, you can probably talk a little bit more about that shutdown. It seems to be a pretty good area you're familiar with. Yeah, look, it, it's, it's scary stuff uh, in terms of, you know, having no motorsport, you know, anywhere out there. Uh, I was on the ground at the Grand Prix the, uh, the day before it started doing a job for, for Renault on the Wednesday. And, you know, everything was kind of, we were all very, you know, that's when the word came through from teams and that, that there were going to be no um, autograph signing. You weren't allowed to have selfies with drivers. This event um, I was at had two of the Renault drivers there. Obviously, Daniel was there um, with Esteban. Uh, and, you know, the, the wording came true that the, you that you weren't to, uh, to, to go up to them and that you were to be, to be keeping a distance. So even before it was cancelled, the teams were already on that front foot being protecting their guys. And then... Um, so it was weird to be there on the Wednesday and watching everyone set up and driving through the paddock. And then literally they got through the Thursday and then, you know, it got, got cancelled on the Friday. So it's pretty, pretty terrible thing to, to see and happen, but for the safety of, of people and, and, and for the teams and all that, and for mainly the spectators, it was something that had to happen. But one good bit of news I did see the other day is that a couple of the teams are working on um, trying to improve the ventilator technology. So I know, I know a lot of countries are going to need more ventilators for the, the older population that, that I suffered badly from mm. COVID-19. So it's good to see that some of that tech is happening. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's hard that we're not going to see, you know, F1 on our screens for, for quite a while. Um, you know, there's been more and more things. Formula E have literally uh, delayed their season. Uh, and one of the biggest news, bits of news this week was that Le Mans has been shifted. So Le Mans is traditionally a middle-of-the-year event. It's been moved to September uh, which is a big move. I know that a couple of photographers I know that have been talking about it saying that it'll be certainly different, different weather, different time of year, different light. The light's obviously going to be different. So they're obviously mm -hmm. looking at a new challenge and I think some of them are looking forward to for approaching it differently. So let's hope that it definitely happens in September. Um, here in Australia, supercars, uh, they've had, uh, they managed to get through Clipsal, which was good, but then, it, you know, they had one day of running at the Grand Prix, but they've now pushed uh, their next three races back, um, both TCR, the Australian J GT Series, and the Australian Rally Championship have all delayed their events as well. The Bathurst Six Hour, which was due to be run in uh, Easter, has been pushed. But the good thing with that is they pushed it through to the November event at Bathurst. So those that were going to uh, were going to be running at that will now get to run at November at a, an even bigger event. So mm -hmm. uh, it may change some of the schedule in terms of when people get to, to run 
um, in terms of timing and if they whether they blow it out another day and make it a little bit longer. But that's pretty cool for for you know for one good thing to see out of it is that the six hour run amongst a lot of other events there should be it should be and you know he's hoping that it is you know over six months away. So he's hoping that we're out of it by then and that mm-hmm. could be a huge event. So for motorsport fans that could be our uh, our massive party event. You know in terms of what what will be happening. Mm-hmm. There'll be lots of cool um classes running at that event but you know what do we do in the meantime well uh, one sport after another seems to be finding it and it's moving to esport so um f1 have just started talking about running an yeah. esport championship supercars are running an esport championship um arg which are the group that are behind tcr are doing it as well and one thing i did note from the tcr point of view is that there's no pro gamers allowed it'll only be drivers from Mm. different series not just tcr but s5000 and um the uh a lot of the other support series that are based around that that arg have involved um that's going to be cool to watch uh, they're going to be able to uh, most of them look to be streaming in some form or another through social whether it be facebook uh, youtube their own site but that's pretty exciting to be able to watch i know that the supercars championship is getting a lot of um uh, it's growing a lot and a lot of the drivers are very keen to get involved and I know the teams are getting right behind it, making sure that their drivers have the right tech to be able to use and drive with. So that that's that's great yeah. to see that they're, they're getting behind this and that we'll be able to have something um, to, to be on our screens and, and have some form of motorsport and, and that they're getting getting to have an ability to drive, you know, certain tracks and certain cars, the, the current... Um, iRacing championship that a lot of people I know that uh, motorsport people or uh, drivers or whatever are very big behind this iRacing movement um, and they have both the Commodore and the Mustang as part of that championship so it'll be cool to to see that but um, yeah I'm intrigued to see what happens over the next couple of months and, and how it all plays out yeah it is great to see I think it's 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 yeah. a uh, so, responsible yeah. thing it's it's responsible for uh, to cancel or postpone the physical events because obviously you know a lot of these a lot of these events attract hundreds of thousands of people and at the moment you don't want hundreds of thousands of people coming together um, because that is the worst case scenario for for transmission and and everything so um, in the interest of safety it's a smart move but I think it's it's excellent to see it's a shame that motorsport is a harder thing to run without. Um, it's a pity you can't just say, well, look, we're going to have no crowds because the thing is that with teams are very close together. They travel the world. A lot, a lot of these racing series um, involve a lot of people from different countries. So it's not only just the health concern, it's also the ability with, um, with international transport becoming, you know, essentially grinding to a halt. It's getting harder for people to get from country to country. Um, you know, it's just physically unable to do, uh, even though um, other sports like the AFL and the NRL are still going ahead um, with just no crowds. So it's going to be really, um, it's exciting to see this transition to, to, to streaming because um, I guess, particularly for Formula One, it'd be great to see because it kind of neutralizes the field a little bit. It's not so much about the cars. Um, as much it is, you know, it's the drivers as well. Uh, it, it focuses a lot more on the driver rather than just, you know, the, the dominance of Mercedes or, or Ferrari versus, you know, a, a back 
back marker like Williams. Um, so it'll be it's, interesting um, to see how that, aspect, sort of how that goes. The um, There's another aspect of e-racing, which a friend of mine does. Um, e-sports, e-races, Formula One. Um, I'm not sure what league e-races in, but there is actually a big discrepancy between some of the equipment that you use. So some still use like control pads because they get an advantage about how the um, the car interprets the inputs from the control pad versus the inputs from the steering wheel, which is much more accurate. Mm-hmm. So you can actually get a little bit of an edge by using a control pad versus a steering wheel. So I'm looking forward to online fights about um, who's using what control pad and what sort of control <laughs> instrumentation and equipment and pedal boxes and stuff. So the question is, will we start seeing FIA rules around um, uh, e-racing setups? You know, you must use all the same, you must all use the same wheels, same displays, computers. Very possibly. Because um, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it is. And um, maybe it gives a little bit of insight into what some of these teams are running for their internal simulators. Because simulate, people shouldn't forget that in these, particularly in the very serious high-end um, racing series, when when they can't be on the track running the car, um, whether because they're not allowed to or because of, you know, money is a very big part of it. Um, a lot of these drivers mm. do practice and learn tracks using simulators that these big teams have. Now, it's very rare to see the setup of the simulators because they like to keep that very, very private. Um, but, yeah, absolutely. Seeing the, the equipment um, vary between, but also, um, yeah, it's it's... There's, there's so many things. We keep saying it's going to be interesting to see, but it really is. A lot of things are happening and changing at the moment in the world of motorsport and the, world, and the rest of the industry that, um, you know, what we're talking about right now can be totally different tomorrow um, simply because there's, there's been developments happening. But um, it's very exciting. It'll be interesting to see once we get, if, you know, if we get back to a little bit more normality um, for these racing series, it'll be interesting to see if um, if the if these virtual e-racing series with real drivers gains any more momentum and actually finds a little bit of a um, you know yeah, it's becomes pace, a bit of a yeah. staple, particularly particularly with um, you know the thing that people usually get upset about when you know with motorsport is when the season ends. So is this a particular way for brands like Formula One where they're really wanting to um, you know, cement their their place in the market because it is still a bit uncertain even before this issue happened. Is this another way to keep people engaged with that particular racing series um, throughout that off-season period, which they have every single year? Mm. Twelve months around the clock revenue. That's that's the goal. Mm. Yeah, well. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um, yeah. I think we'll yeah. move on. I think we'll move on from. Uh, that aspect of the COVID-19, there's, there's still so much, a lot of it changing. When we come back next week, I'm sure everything will be completely different again. Hopefully a little bit better news or a bit more clarity on, on cemented things. But in terms of just general auto news, there's also been a ton happening here um, in Australia. So probably the, the leading story um, or the lead thing that people probably is on the tip of the tongue is, is the shutdown of Holden. Um couple of weeks ago now it feels like ages ago because of the the pace of news that's been happening at the moment but holden um and parent company general motors decided to announce that 
um, they'll be shutting up shop, retiring the brand. They, they, they haven't sold the brand. They haven't done anything else. No, no further plans for the brand. They're just simply retiring. So don't know if we'll see it again in the future. Maybe um, Hummer, we know that Hummer is coming back in the States as an electric brand. So who knows? Anything is possible. But um, one thing that is probably the most concerning piece of news to see, which came from, um, which is which initially reported on by Car Advice, is that the initial period of support and servicing, um, which they promised during that announcement, was providing 10 years of parts and service availability and, and the honouring of the seven-year warranty um, and servicing package for cars that have currently or were being sold. But now the latest report coming out is that 10 years is actually going to be put back down to five years, which is a bit concerning. Yeah, I think uh, I, I think the wording of that particular article, um, I, I wouldn't say whether it's misleading or not. It's, I guess, got some extrapolation out of it based on a different point of view. So the actual uh, information they're reporting on is the support contract agreements for the dealers to sign up to which is five years. And from my understanding from a few people I've talked to, five years is a standard uh, sign-up period that you would normally get. And it even says in the article itself that dealers will have the opportunity to sign on for another five years after this one expires, so 2025 to, mm-hmm. to 2030. Um, so I, I, I've never heard of anybody signing a contract for 10 years to support um, a capability. And from from a business risk perspective, you'd be pretty risky to sign up. Like, I'm not sure what sort of cost impost goes with being a service provider for holding, um, holding of stock, I would expect training of technicians and the like, and obviously having to respond to recalls, that, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if your fleet is going to diminish, which it is, I mean, holding sales have been going down for, for quite a period of time. Um, You've got to make sure that it makes sense to your business that there's going to be enough work to cover the initial outlay investment that you're going to have to be able to support that particular vehicle. So for the five years, it's a bit more of a short thing. You can say, okay, well, they've got these particular vehicles that have been released in the last five years. These sorts of servicings are going to be required. That sort of business they know they're going to get because there's already agreed servicing schedules. People have purchased a car and got focusing with it so you know that there's that amount of that's out there and it's going to get serviced because it doesn't cost the owner anything so it's only once you know when you actually have to pay for the servicing that owners that are less responsible will not service as often and not take it in for um for its regular checkups or it's ten thousand they might do it in twenty thousand cases the agreed five or seven year servicing whatever agreement you've got with your sale then at least the dealers know that the business is there. After that period, there's a bit more of a question mark. And for me, if I was managing a service centre, what I would be doing is monitoring the traffic that's coming in, seeing how consistent it is, making sure you're getting, um, you know, repeat servicings from the same customers. They're coming back to you, which gives you a bit more surety so that when you get to 2025, you have more confidence that they're going to come back and then you sign up for the next five years. There's no... um, I guess that doesn't talk about the actual support organisation held by Holden Australia. I don't know if there's going to be anything there, but the 
the article itself is trying to get based on negotiations for servicing actual support that's going to be provided by Holden over the next 10 years. And I guess the, unlike a, a consumer electronic or anything like that, where you've got the retailer, you've got, um, you know, someone like JB Hi-Fi, say if you buy a phone, you have the retailer mm. JB Hi-Fi, and um, then you have the manufacturer of the device itself. If you have a problem with that device, you have a couple of different avenues. And, and if, for example, if JB Hi-Fi stops existing tomorrow, um, you could always go straight back to the manufacturer. But with cards, it's a little bit different. So, and, and which probably complicates and creates a little bit more uncertainty around, you know, when and why people are looking at this, you know, why this article even exists um, is probably because, well, if nobody is going to say that they, you know, officially support, um, you know, provide factory support in a way, um, you can't just necessarily go back to GM and, and mail them your car and go, hey, I'm having this problem. Can you fix it for me? Um, your options are kind of limited in, in, in getting that addressed. And, I, and that maybe that's what's, you know, attracting that attention with this article is, um, yeah, absolutely. It, it, it makes sense to, to not do uh, an upfront 10-year agreement, um, even though that probably would from a consumer point of view, even though, let's be honest, it's probably going to be very small number of consumers. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's about, you know, um, providing you know even a presenting the fact that yeah here's some assurance um even if it just makes more sense from a business point of view that yeah let's do a five-year agreement and then even after that we'll probably see a reduction of um the number of sites again um because yeah like what you said not every business is going to go and find it worthwhile to keep supporting it at that same level um, but there's definitely going to be a few out there that will go, oh, look, we're, we're happy to operate and keep that that little bit of business coming through. I think what we might find yeah, as well is that, there's, that there yeah, could be... I was going to say, uh, I think there's... Oh, sorry, Joel. Yeah. Sure. Go, buddy. You go, Mick. Probably... Uh, thinking that there's like seven years I dropped out. Can you guys hear? Uh, yep, just uh, just start again. <laughs> Rewind. <laughs> this is what you get for talking over Joel. Uh, I think uh, Mick, you might have just dropped out for a sec. Uh, Joel, do you want to... I'm yes. out. So I'll go. Uh, what I was going to say is, we what we might find is that there may be uh, more dealerships that uh, become more co-branding. You know, Holden may become the the smaller part of it. So for a service department, um, you know, you may find that they may become they serve multiples. There's a dealership here in Melbourne that um, part of their agreement uh, is that they are a Subaru dealership, but then they also do a small section that they have for Peugeot and Citroen. Um, mm -hmm. And so that they're used to this more of a satellite option to enable people that in are in that area that the, the closest Peugeot dealership is not that close, but then they may have the ability to come in and, and be able to do um, uh, the ability to do that. So we may see that. I, I know that there's a 
there's dealers in in Melbourne that are you know there's one not far from home that that that's that's Holden and Mitsubishi together. You know, they've literally mm-hmm. one side of the building is Mitsubishi and one side is Holden. I think we'll probably see more of that. I think the the, the Holden side will probably yeah. drop down and it'll be there'll be a satellite Holden dealership and they'll be whatever the stronger part of their business is. So, because yeah. um, I mean, uh, over yeah. the next six months, I know that there's already dealers, particularly even on from the from the Infinity side. You know, that's another. Uh, everyone made the the big deal about Holden disappearing off the market, but even seeing Infinity drop out of Australia, which is a sad sign to see. Um, I mean, that's a that's a whole story for another day in terms of their product mix. But to see them disappearing is is a sad sad thing thing to see. But you know, I know that there's guys out there that are that were an Infinity dealer that are now looking for more to represent another brand. I mean, they they that's great. We've had it, but we want to. You know, we're we're a dealer that does other other product. Who else can we t- we take on? And I think we'll see a lot of the Holden dealers that are out there that I think are, that are smart will probably start rebranding and t- suddenly pop up as being a, a another dealer for another brand if if there's not currently one in their current PMA. Yeah, yeah. It'd be interesting Even to our... see because it. Go on, Meg. Uh, just uh, our local Holden dealer has done the same. Oh, he's a. a... Uh, multi-brand dealer and, and he used to have Holden on the corner big Toyota dealership with the Holden dealer sort of sitting out the back which is slowly getting emptier and emptier I know they used to have a FJ Holden uh, a limited edition Monaro and something else a couple of nice historical you know Holdens in the showroom which are all gone now it's just a clear floor with a with a new Camaro which is nice Mm. Um, but yeah, obviously the the multi franchise dealers will be definitely shuffling around, which is the primary brand and which are the which are the follow up ones now. I just I guess the the other point I wanted to make previously before I was dropping out was the um, now is a good time for Holden to actually make a statement about articles like the one that we were talking about previously, so that five Absolutely. year support to give some confidence. You know, I mean. I, I get the General Motors probably aren't that concerned about the reputation of the Holden brand, but support Holden over the years. You know, they still need General Motors and Holden to provide confidence to consumers so that they'll come and get the last amount of stock. I mean, the, the dealers don't, don't want to be holding on to these cars forever. They want consumers to have on this car and it's going to be good for the next 10 years mm-hmm. and i suspect that general motors will want to come so, back in some form or another um in the future parts. whether it's through whether it's through the special again vehicles. same thing you know an expert oh, sorry Mick. yeah i think with with general motors special vehicles i think it's um general well, motors will want to maintain some form of positive relationship and i think a statement would would help shore that up because yeah absolutely holden brand is going away and general motors isn't really interested in the right hand drive market but they really need to be conscious that if at any point in the future they want to come back australians tend to remember these things we tend to really we we don't really forget when we get burned and um it's yeah. really important that um that they handle it in the right way to also get dealers 
back on board if they do decide to bring the brand back in some form or another, because obviously everyone's going to remember how they were treated now um, in the in, in essentially the worst time. So if they, because it takes a lot of investment from dealers to support a brand. Um, and that's why it's going to be interesting to see who fills these big showrooms because Holden has big, when it was the number one brand in Australia, there were, it's the largest dealer network by far. Um, they have massive showrooms and so it'd be interesting to see well who's going to step up into those into that large location um particularly when we are we are already a fairly competitive market we don't have the sales volume of other larger markets but people always like to fight and tussle so it'd be interesting to see what incentive will come from the different manufacturing brands to go hey look you know that holden dealership that you have that really big amount of floor space and and prominent um spot on the road rather mm, being that rather than being that little you know, the de- demountable or small building that's on the corner of your lot. We really want that large spot. So it's going to, uh, there's going to be a lot of brands I'm sure who are want, who are eyeing that space come up available, particularly because Holden really apart from some, or even um, across a lot of, uh, of Australia, most of those Holden dealerships were owned by multi-brand dealer um, motoring groups. So um, there's definitely capital in there available to to make things happen in a really quick quick way as well if they want. Um, so there's lots of opportunity in that space. Holden and General Motors really need to handle it right, particularly with um, uh, there are, there is still Holden or General Motors product to be sold, whether that's under Chevy through HSV um, or uh, the existing clearance stock, and then also you've you've got the other thing, which is the new Corvette, that has been already engineered in right-hand drive, but now they're not selling, so they've spent a ton of money on a right-hand drive car, but they're really, you know, there's questions they haven't said anything further about that either, even though um, speaking to someone who has who actually was one of the first ones to pre-order the car, um, they were told that the first year's allocation has already been sold out here in Australia. Now that allocation isn't huge, but that's, that's a lot of um, passionate customers who um, are in a, in a really weird holding pattern of um, are they going to get the car or who's going to sell them the car at one point? Um, because obviously it's, it's probably not going to be holding themselves um, doing that buying. Have you heard much about the, about the term general motors, special vehicles? Um, yeah. So I've heard that doing the rounds a little. Um, yeah. I guess taking a bit of an assumption out, out of that acronym, um, I would imagine that Ryan Walkinshaw would probably appreciate if General Motors polished up the whole image a little bit before they departed, just for for future sake. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. 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 But um, so let's let's move but on. I mean, I haven't a heard. Few- a few more things to, to talk about because yeah, the, the general motor special vehicles I've, I've mentioned it, but um, they haven't really ha- passed on any more information. Um, so that's really up in there. So um, we'll probably, hopefully, well, probably at the moment because of the other crisis and pandemic that's going on, they're probably going to be a bit slow to release that information, but um, what's promising, there is a couple of positive things coming out of this um one of them we're in a bit of a holding pattern to find out so genesis genesis have revealed a couple new cars that are heading down under the new g80 and the gv80 um mazda's Mm. revealed their future value program which is probably not the best timing for them good for buyers but not the best time for them 
Um, and then hopefully what will be pushing um, some of those new announcements and, and you know, bolstering uh, the, the, bar car, the, the car buying market is the government stimulus package, which at yep. the moment um, there is a lot of uncertainty. And again, uncertainty is another word that we've been talking about a lot. Um, but at the moment, it's unclear at the moment if that $150,000 write-off um, that businesses are able to take advantage or will be able to take advantage of apply it, whether the full amount applies to the cars or if it's just limited to, I think the number being thrown around was about $57,000. So that will, that is going to, I think going to make a big impact at the, in the short term on whether um, the, the car market is going to get, see a bit of a boost. If it doesn't, if that stimulus package doesn't apply, I think the the car market is going to be in a, a lot more pain than it already is. Um, yeah. The FCAI, when they release their VFAX, is is pretty pretty dire every time it comes out. Unfortunately, it, it never looks. It's not never good when unfortunately the um, their team is putting out a, a release and there's really not a lot of good things to talk about um, when the when the when the market's shrinking. Um, so. If the government was able to to include in that 150,000 cars, we could see a bit of a boost across all levels of the market, don't you think? Yeah, again, a uh, another business confidence type um, question there. I mean, the same as any other piece of equipment that you buy for your business, it's got to be earning you money while you own it. So That's right. obviously if you can't go out to a customer and do work for them, you don't need a vehicle and therefore it's just sitting there chewing up, you know, chewing up money and not earning you any money. It's just going out. It's a, um, you know, a redundant expenditure. However, when you're looking at, and I haven't actually checked these figures. I thought about it just before we um, switched on today is what sort of level of home delivery increase there's been over mm. this past period, because obviously a lot of people are going to be sitting at home buying things online, whether that be shopping or other things, whether or not they actually go through a risk assessment and say, hey, I don't want to buy that piece of equipment because it comes from China and, you know, it could be at risk, whether they actually mm-hmm. do that assumption, who mm-hmm. knows. Um, but certainly I believe there's going to be a um, an increase in at least um, uh, terminal to property type logistics. So these mm-hmm. small deliveries, the guys doing, you know, all the Aussie post contractors, those types of people, um, there's an opportunity there, I guess, for um, for small businesses to start taking those sort of purchases and turning into mm-hmm. getting a new or more efficient vehicle. Um, aside from that, I couldn't see outside of logistics um, too many people that would be too excited about buying a new car at the moment due to the no. fact that they can't really do much work, even if they have a nice shiny new vehicle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right, and that's that's where, like you mentioned, the the contracting delivery, Australia Post, um, those sorts of package delivery, and even food delivery. Um, yeah. But again, the complexity and the ability to purchase a new car at this point in time probably um, doesn't make a lot of sense for them. Um, so yeah, it it's it is a tough one. Um, it probably isn't, you know, and, and I don't really want to get too political, but it, it probably at the at this point in time, it's probably not the most helpful bit of stimulus um, that's there because companies are probably needing cash more than the ability to write off something on paper. Um, yeah, that's 
and you know but that's that's a completely different discussion and we're not accountants we're not um we're not political commentators either so we're probably not the best qualified for it um even though i could just drop casually that luxury car tax would be a good thing to drop right now um that seems to uh, coincide very much with the uh, upper limit of the um proposed um write-off level for the vehicles Fifty-seven thousand is that yeah yeah that's pretty close yeah Yeah. (laughs) it's very close isn't it awfully coincidental yeah um I, i i do think though there is you know there's because their dealers are looking at trying to get rid of vehicles, there's going to be some good deals out there. So that might Absolutely. might make a little bit more financial sense. Um, having said that, if you get this stimulus, and part of the role for stimulus packages isn't just about giving someone a break. It's about creating cash flow amongst a bunch of different people. So when they talk about, you know, people going and spending $750 on a big screen TV or whatever, that's 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 an easy um, scenario to comment and and criticize but the reality is that when people get a large amount of cash like that they may spend it in a whole bunch of different places so you've got a whole bunch of businesses that benefit from that cash whereas if you're purchasing a vehicle as a write-off for your company that amount of cash goes to the dealer and you know a little bit of staff so mm-hmm. it doesn't and primarily that stimulus vehicle quite is coming no, and primarily that that vehicle, there isn't a lot of profit for dealers with cars. A lot of the money comes from, you know, a lot of the argument really is that the financing is, you know, that's where, and, and aftermarket, that's where dealers really make their um, bread and butter. So yeah. you could also, there's there's an argument that most of the that vehicle purchase price is going straight overseas um, as yeah. well. So it's not really helping in terms of it's moving cash, but it's moving, you know, the argument could be made that the cash is going to the wrong place. Um, yeah, so apart from covering a few stuff. Yeah. So that's where going through other, other areas um, with smaller amounts of cash could be better. Um, but we can only wait and see and, 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 and watch that space. And like I said, car deals are going to be good how many people are going to be looking for new cars? Well, that's a, that's a, that's a different argument completely at the moment. Yeah. And um, it's only going to be, it's it. Uh, um, another thing we're going to discuss is that could be a uh, potentially a new um, Z car coming from Nissan, um, which is pretty exciting. Yes. Um, but the question is, well, how soon could we see it? And if there is a bit of a, a slowdown in the market, they might be, you know, tempted to, to hold on to it a little bit longer. But um, the 300 kilowatt, 400 Z, um, apparently, according to recent filings, could be on its way, which um, would be very nice to see. I would be super excited about that. <clears throat> Although, I, I guess I was a little bit disappointed from the um, from the article that I read that was talking about. I know this is a sign of the times, but Automatic transmission, turbocharged engine, lots of power, sure. But I think one of the things that I really like about the current 370Z, Nismo, I'll be honest, was probably a little bit harsh for me. <clears throat> Excuse me, and the road of the Sunshine Coast. But regular 30th anniversary 370Z that I drove mm-hmm. last week. What a great car, even though I have to take my shoes off to drive it because I'm <laughs> six foot six, so it's a little bit a little bit crowded. Um, but once you're in there, uh, so much fun. Normally aspirated V6, rear-wheel drive, mm-hmm. six-speed manual. Mm-hmm. Um, nice long I know board. it's, it's coming. Yeah, it feels, looks good. 
goes hard and it's got a lot of feedback, a lot of real old world car mm-hmm. driving about it. And yeah. I know a lot of people have moved on from that sort of stuff, but I still mm-hmm. like that feeling of, you know, you have to control it. You don't get saved by nannies. You're saved by the competence of the chassis and the size of the tyres and the feedback and information you put into the car. That's what dr- real driving is about. And they enjoy about 370Z. So I like the renders that, um, so this uh, one that we saw from uh, Practical Motoring was the, the render from a Chinese car designer. I like the idea that something's going to be influenced by the 240 and the, uh, the 260Z. Great shaped cars, very beautiful. Mm-hmm. You know, long lasting classics, they certainly age well. The aesthetic, the idea that it's going to come from that space is really great. I'm a little bit disappointed about automatic, but again, that might not turn out to be true. Turbocharged, sure, it'll be faster, but I don't know. I like normally aspirated. What do you guys think? Look, I'm happy to, I've driven, well, yeah, it's a bit different to what you guys are talking about, but I've driven the current GDR and I, I don't mind that engine and, and that mm. setup. But yeah, look, I, I owned a WRX uh, and I've owned naturally aspirated. So I've driven something that's turbo and I've driven V8s and, you know, V6s and stuff like that. So I, I'm, mm. a, I'm a weird case. I, I kind of will take any car on its merit. Um, I, I don't really have yeah. a passion for one particular type of, Induction, though, in saying that, I'm very, very uh, led towards anything that's supercharged. Um, my father has a Mini Cooper S that I've driven that's one of the early ones that was supercharged, and mm-hmm. I still think that's one of the coolest things ever, and just listening to that supercharger scream, and I've driven yeah. a, a, a Dodge Demon, uh, not a Demon, a Dodge... Um... Oh, Mickey, help me out here. What am I talking about? Um uh, well, not the Hellcat. Hellcat? Yeah, I've driven a Hellcat. And that, oh, really? again, is, okay. is one of those cars that just that noise of the supercharger yeah. and is just like, I love that sound. Um, yeah. So, look, I, I think I'm intrigued to see which way Nissan goes with the Z. Um, I think they'll go, and, and I think for them, they'll probably be smart about it and look at it as much as it pains us to say it these days, they have to look at it from fuel economy numbers um, and everything's about making sure that their overall numbers on an average is better. So they'll Mm -hmm. probably go probably on the smaller side and probably definitely turbocharge it to make things easier. Um, But yeah, look, I think... Come on, just just build what Mick wants. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, look, I got, you, you've got to look at the success of other similar cars. So you've got to look at the um, BMW M2. Um, that's, I think, proven, which probably will, um, if they look at the success of that, both in um, the automatic, or the, the, the dual-clutch um, automatic as well as the manual, both of them are seeing great success um, from enthusiasts. That's a turbocharged inline six. Um, so maybe, hopefully, Nissan are taking some some lessons from from those, and even you know looking at what happened with the Supra. Supra, uh, in my opinion, got a lot of hype, but then really went quiet. Um, it, it, I haven't seen too many on the road at all. Um, it just, I think it kind of fell a little bit flat once it got into the hands of a few people. And I know some people that, that do have one and do like it, but I don't think it's quite resonated with them compared to say what, you know, in their mind, what a super is, which I think probably for a lot of people, even around my age, probably will think that's, 
ends up being a highly modified version of the original car. The original Supra was pretty boring. Um, if if you have to compare it to the tuner world that really took that car and went crazy with it, it wasn't until the end of the mm. Supra where they Toyota kind of picked up on that and, and ended up putting in some amazing, you know, the amazing engines into it. But the tuner world was really what made the Supra particularly in, you know, that late nineties, early two thousands, too fast, too furious, that kind of, um, that generation. Uh, (laughs) Not my favorite franchise. (laughs) No, but that's, that's what the super brand is. I think to a lot of younger people and the super, what has ended up coming out is kind of, it wasn't maybe, maybe they, they misread it and going, well, they built it with those people in mind, but the people who can afford it are, are, are a different part of that market. Um, yeah. And it hasn't really resonated as much with them. But the um, other thing is you've got to look at it is that it's a, it's a co-venture. It's another one of those brands yeah. deals where you're dealing with another brand. So you yeah. don't get every say in it. If you, I mean, I don't know whether you guys have actually sat in a current Supra, you get in and having already driven the Z4, it, it, they're very similar when you get into the two yeah. of them. So they, you, you get this feeling like, oh, hang on, what am I sitting in? Because yeah. there's certain elements of each of them that, that copy over. So, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, I think it, it's been one of those cars that sold well when they did the initial purchase orders and stuff like that. And they sold, mm-hmm. that, but there hasn't been a lot. Again, you look back to motorsport, the age old race on the weekend, yeah. you know, still on Monday, we're going to see one of our first really hot ones, particularly for the American market. One of the drifters in the US is building a thousand horsepower Supra drift car. Mm-hmm. So that's going to be cool to see. Um, Frederick Asbo is building one at the moment. I mean, now that the championship's been pushed back, he'll have more time to build it. But I think that will be interesting to watch to see yeah. what resonates from that and how, yeah. how it flows on. Um, you know, it's but probably... you're still talking about a hundred thousand dollar car, though. You're not Correct. talking about a, yeah. a thirty thousand, twenty thousand dollar used car that's you know ten years old. You're talking about a car that you know is is just under a hundred thousand. Um, and yeah, like what you said, it, it's it's a little bit mixed in terms of um, there's been some compromise along the way, um, in achieving. So it's not a pure, you know, there, there'll be people who make arguments either way, but. Some could say that, well, it's not exactly a pure super because it isn't 100% made by Toyota and they haven't, um, you know, injected 100% of that DNA into that. Um, yeah, but they put their spin on it. The design is Toyota yeah. and, that, and that's yeah. what makes oh, it It's a great so looking cool. car. It is yeah. fantastic. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. But, yeah, part, and, and Toyota tried. Like, oh, they really, they, they did aim for, they involved um, a lot of the tuning community very early on um, into that product marketing cycle for the launch of the car to get them involved and and modifying. So they had the right intention, but I think um, it'd probably be a little bit longer until we start to see that that car resonate with the people that they probably intended it for, particularly in Australia where um, it is quite an expensive car. Um, And when things like the BMW M2 are priced, Oh, it's still twenty thousand dollars, but priced. You can get some really good deals on them, where it makes that pricing a little bit more competitive. And when you look at the two next to each other, sure, I think the Supra is a better looking car, but the M2 is probably the the most pure driving experience you can buy right now outside, you know, at that price point. Um, do you think, so do you think they've gone the wrong? 
do you think they've gone the wrong way maybe for audience maybe they followed too close in the strategic footsteps they had for the for the 86 where they did the same thing you know in involved the community involved tuners got everyone on board and got a little bit of a hype machine running and then they've got to the end and everyone's gone oh a hundred thousand dollars i don't actually have that but i like the car no, well, um, think about think the maybe... amount of money that people spend on on tuning and and modifying their vehicle, yeah. and that's a lot of money. And so once you factor that in, on top of the purchase price of the car, um, it starts to become a very expensive vehicle. Where I think they kind yeah, of missed sure. an opportunity with the '86 and the BRZ um, to inject more power into that and to develop and evolve that product over time. Um, it kind of suffered from it came out of the market it had a huge amount of um success and it continued for quite a while it was actually quite surprising um because it resonated so well with that particular market they nailed it they got the pricing absolutely perfect um yep. for what it was it was very pure for a car um it was very moderate in terms of performance so it was very manageable it wasn't it wasn't a scary car to drive but if you wanted to push it at a track day you could absolutely you, know, you could have a huge amount of fun um, without yeah, spending a lot of money. Um, but they could have, over the years of the product, they they could have upped the power or, or introduced special models that took that, you know, what the aftermarket world was doing to the cars into a factory version of the product to attract, you know, that next level of Absolutely. people yeah. um, who want that power, want that car, but aren't necessarily confident in going into that world of, of tuning. Yep. I could actually drive that car with my shoes still on. So yeah. <laughs> a, little, a little bit more space than the Z. Um, but yeah, great, great car to drive. But again, they just needed more oomph to go with that package. Um, so close. But I guess, you know, it's kind of getting to the end of its life. Hopefully they're working on whatever's next as a, um, you know, doesn't lose that that connection yeah. that you get when you're driving the 86. Mm. Um, but yeah, more ponies, please. Yeah. I think a, a super, maybe not as in its exact form, but a, a form developed for that fifty to sixty thousand dollar price bracket. So that twenty thousand dollar premium over the eighty six would have been just right. Um, maybe it wasn't, you know, maybe it wouldn't have been um, as fast or, or packed as much into that package as the current version does. But maybe that could have been the better price point to aim for um, in the Australian market anyway. Because think about the other people who are buying cars in that $50,000, $60,000 mark. You've got um, Kia Stinger. You've got a lot of performance vehicles and performance sedans in that, in that price mark, um, which probably would have been a sweet spot for a vehicle like that. Um, and, yeah, so... Fingers crossed that Nissan, you know, the, they've, they've done pretty well with pricing for the 370Z, I think, even though it's getting it a little bit older now, it's still a really good price yeah. for what you're getting. Um, I, it, it needs, it just needs some minor updates in the interior just to modernize oh, it a little bit. Um, <laughs> yeah, the steering wheel like was a, nice, but it, like, yeah, it, it, it needs some work. You expect to open the glove box and a fax will fall out or something. That's right, it's yeah. Just, um, <laughs> it's just awesome. Oh, very, the, very I, odd I, stuff in there. But I almost feel um, the uh, the Bluetooth audio quality is so bad. It it is, <laughs> you know, when people I I never understood when people say, oh, you know, using Bluetooth headphones, it always sounds really bad, and I never understood it. But then I finally understood the difference in Bluetooth quality because when I jumped in that car and set up Bluetooth, um, it 
it just sounded awful. I couldn't understand whether it was my my music that was playing that was low quality. Then I plugged in the USB cable and that worked fine. But what I what I then learned was that if I wanted to use the GPS like Waze on my phone, I couldn't play like I'd have to plug into another charger um, and just go Bluetooth for music because um, it couldn't charge the phone yeah, at a fast yeah, enough yeah. rate. Um, so it it just it just needs some little basic things, um, which would have made it perfect for everybody who wanted everything, I think, for a car like that. But um, I think those compromises in the grand scheme, if you want a great, naturally aspirated, rear-wheel drive um, sports car uh, for that price is very hard to um, compete with. But um, but look, I think we're conscious of um of time. So there's there's plenty of stuff, yeah, and yeah. there's going to be a huge amount of news. That's right. Well um, so so what's coming up for you in the next week, Joel? What what are you driving? What have you got planned? Uh, obviously, um, plans have been changed a little bit, but um, no, nothing really earmarked at the moment. I'm just uh, working away in the uh, in the office today. Staying at home and uh, just staying safe, really, at the moment. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's really about it. Um, just seeing what happens over the next couple of weeks in terms of you know what's happening. So, mm-hmm. unfortunately, a fair percentage of my work has uh, has disappeared due to you know social distancing and all those sort of rules, mm-hmm. which is you mm-hmm. know, perfectly understandable. Um, yeah. So yeah, I uh, I think we'll just wait and see really what comes over mm-hmm. the next couple mm-hmm. of weeks. What about you, Mick? Uh, what's what's what vehicles are you driving uh, this week? I've got. Oh, you've just uh, just dropped out for a second. Well, what's the uh, what's Mick sorting out? Oh, is he back? Uh, Mick, you're dropping out. I think uh, the internet has just uh, decided it's time. <laughs> um, but I'll come up with me anyway. I'll whilst whilst we give um, Mick a chance. telling us to be quiet and go home. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're trying. We're trying to find out what are you, what are you driving at the moment. What have you What have you got coming up this week? Mick, and then the and then the Kia Carnival. Uh, okay. Which is pretty handy, so I can fit a lot of toilet paper in there, which is which is <laughs> going to be handy. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'll be comparing those two. It, it'll be quite interesting, actually, because obviously the carnival has, you know, ruled the roost as far as family vans have gone for the last couple of yeah. years. So it'll be interesting to see how the Grandia, um, yeah, takes the the fight to the current champion. Mm-hmm. I'm intrigued to so see what you think of the Grandia, having driven it. I think it's a cool little, it's a cool bus, very fun to drive and uh, nicely put together. Well, I'm booked in for it in a little while, so I'm looking forward to, to getting behind. I, I don't know. I never thought that I'd be so excited to drive a people mover. Um, <laughs> but every time I have one booked, I go, oh, yeah, this is going to be a lot of fun. You know, there's tons of space. Oh. So usually people movers in Australia tend to be really well appointed. Um, and so I always look forward to it because they tend to be just a great, <laughs> yeah. great one to have. Um, so, <laughs> um, but that's, uh, but that'll be interesting to see how you go with that. 
Um, attitude. Yeah, it's, I think it's a different attitude when you're driving. Yeah. People. I think it also means that you might be able to sneak into um, uh, the occasional um, pram spot, but I don't think that's going to be a problem at the moment. Um, there's, as the number of people going to the shops and to public places is declining. Um but coming up for me, I've, I'm jumping into uh, the the updated but X1. Yeah, but I'm uh, jumping into the updated X125i. Um, so that'd be um, it's going to be interesting. I haven't. My grandparents actually own the the pre-update one, um, so uh, I'll be keen to see what's what's new and what's been updated. Um, so I think uh, it it definitely needed some interior updates. Exterior styling has certainly improved, but um. Yeah, definitely keen to to get behind the wheel and, and seeing how um, it still fits into the very crowded uh, low end of the market for for BMW in that compact space. Because with the introduction of the updated one series, which is a lot more friendly to passengers, you've got the the two series Grand Coupe now, um, which is essentially their their CLA competitor from Mercedes. Um, You've got the X2, which I think has kind of um, fizzled out a little bit, um, and the X1. So it's uh, going to be interesting to see. Yeah, the X2 has been a bit of a funny one. X2 very striking. Yeah, I I think it um it it just it's probably priced not really in the right spot. Um, it's probably a little bit too expensive. I think uh they probably went after a little too hard the GLA market um the gla the, the mercedes gla that for a little while was extremely popular that was yeah. unbelievable and so it made sense for bmw to come up with a with an answer to that um however i i just don't think the the entire execution of it was was exactly perfect i enjoyed the time i drove one um not so long ago and um it's our cover car for the first edition of Velocita. but um i enjoyed it but i just it was just a hard car to fit. It only suited a really small segment of the market. Um, kind of like the two series active yeah, right. tour. That was, you know, the two series active tour was in my mind, an answer to the B class Mercedes. Um, but again, Mercedes seemed to just get those vehicle segments, right? They know who their buyer is and, and, and do it really well. And they've been doing it for a little while. Um, where BMW, I think, um, was, yeah, didn't, didn't really quite get it right. Um, and maybe polarize yeah. people a little bit in terms of going front wheel drive. Um, and that would be again, um, a curious thing to see when I drive it, the two on eight grand coupe in a, in a few weeks time, um, just to see can a front wheel drive BMW sort of still, does it still feel like a BMW? Um, mm, because certainly the all wheel drive versions are awesome. It's really yeah. cool to drive. It's a great car and it's got a fantastic engine in it. Mm-hmm. Really, really nice package. I was really impressed with that one three five. Yeah, but they've been but they've been doing all wheel drive for a long time. We just haven't seen those cars here in Australia. X drive vehicles in um, variants in Europe have been around for a very long time. Um, so they've kind of had a chance to yeah, refine that. Um, where front wheel drive is still relatively new, where um, compared to Mercedes and and, and even Audi, um, they've been doing front wheel drive for a very long time. So they've gotten to know um, how they behave and how to really tune it to make them feel good. 
um, for a general drive. So yeah, it's it's um. So they've certainly I'll be um, interested to see. Yeah, I'm just I'm just wondering, um, just from hearing that little interchange there, talking about the BMW version versus the Mercedes one, it seems to me that BMW are doing well chasing BMW customers, but not so good at chasing Mercedes Benz customers. Yeah, I think you've got that right. Uh, so yeah, we'll we'll see how it goes and. Um, yeah, thanks for thanks for joining us. We'll we'll let you go with your with your self isolation, uh, social isolating, uh, stay at home as much as you can, um, and stay healthy. Uh, so uh, thanks, uh, Joel Strickland. Um, you can find Joel at Joel Strick Photo um, across Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or just Google him. You'll find him. Um, just look for the photos. And um, Mick McWilliams, thank you. Uh, Mick from Low Flight, Low Flight Tech, if you want to look them up on Instagram um, or just search for Low Flight, you'll find uh, Low Flight Culture on Google. There's certainly an easy way to find him as well. Um, so thanks, but guys. Really appreciate having you. Ignore me if you see me in the comment section. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll look forward to, to seeing you next week. And um, so we can obviously talk about everything else that's happened. Um, I'm Ashley Perkins. You can find uh, everything that I'm doing at Daily Auto Fix um, and also keep an eye out for Velo Sheeta magazine. We'll have links on our socials so you can also read that second edition with our Rolls-Royce um, special article where we drove the Rolls-Royce Dawn and talk everything about the new dealership in Brisbane um, on the digital edition. So uh, thank you and um, we'll catch you next time. Thanks, guys.